Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series on the prophets. It's uh, just fascinating themes. If you haven't realized this yet, I think I forgot to tell you in our last lesson. The way I'm doing this is there are so many prophets that uh, I'm not taking like a prophet in each lesson. I'm gonna do it thematically. And each lesson you'll get introduced to at least a couple of the prophets. So I'd like you to leave this feeling like you've at least been introduced to all of them. So that's kind of what we're up to. Um, during class, as always, you can text questions to that number. It's on the handout here and it's also on the handout online. But let me say a prayer for us and we will dive right in. Lord, thank you for the mercies that you've given to us. We are grateful to be born into a country that we did not choose and for the freedoms that we have. I pray, Father, that like the prophets of old, we would faithfully and courageously speak your word for the building up of those around us, for the flourishing of humanity. I pray, Father, you would give us love to speak truth to those who desperately need to hear it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the biblical prophets spoke in specific times and specific places, but the message that they delivered was for all times and all places. For example, in our last lesson, we were introduced to the prophet Nathan, who had to speak some hard truths to King David. We talked about Elijah, who spoke some very unwelcome truths to King Ahab. And then of course, John the Baptist, who lost his life for speaking God's truth to one of the Herods. And the idea was the courage that it takes, that it took then and it takes now to speak God's truth in the world. And I don't mean courage in a combative sense, I just simply mean that the world does not like to hear the truth. If you remember, it's a little off the subject, but I, just to illustrate that point, remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is questioning him, trying to find a way not to kill him, to be fair to Pontius Pilate. It wasn't a good political move for him. But he's trying to find a way uh, you know, to get Jesus off and he's talking to Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? And he answers and he says, for this reason I came into the world. And that is to speak the truth. And everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. And that's when Pontius Pilate says that famous, what, what is truth? And you know that for speaking the truth to people, honestly, an uplifting, hope, life-giving truth, Jesus was crucified. Well, the prophets also found that speaking truth to power required a great deal of courage. Well, in this lesson, we need to do quite a little bit of history, so stay with me. I think this will be a nice little framework to build around the prophets but I wanna to talk to you about the kings of Israel and what's happening. In our last lesson, we saw prophets speaking to kings. In this lesson, we're going to see prophets speaking to just people. Remember, we talked about what prophets did is what a wide variety of things. In this lesson, it's not about the kings, but this is a good way to frame the history of Israel. Okay, so this is a map of Israel 
under King Saul, King David, and Solomon. And so King Saul uh, began to reign in 1050 BC. Before that time is the book of Judges. So if you, if you think about the Old Testament historically, you get the Exodus coming out of Egypt, and then you get Joshua who leads them into the promised land, and then you have this time period where they're basically tribal and they're bonded together by their allegiance to God. Well, in the book of First and Second Samuel, you see the transition from Samuel, the last of the judges, into naming a king. And so you have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And this map's color-coded so you can see that King David, blessed by God, enlarged the territory to near what God had promised Abraham. And so King David uh, ruled from 1010 to 970 BC and then Solomon from 970 BC to 930. These were glory days for Israel. This 10th century BC was Israel at one of its peaks. They were faithful to God. They had kings that, that turned to God. They observed the law of God, the law of Moses, and God blessed them under King David. When Solomon died, however, Solomon's son Rehoboam, Solomon had a lot of sons. Solomon was, let's just say he was an absent dad and uh, there were dad issues, you know, with most of his kids. And so his son Rehoboam is the one who's tapped to take the throne. And so as Rehoboam gathers all of the 12 tribes, remember there are 12 tribes of Israel and the leaders of the 12 tribes come together with the full expectation of anointing Rehoboam king. So I wanna take you to tell you what happens here because this event in 930 BC influences the, rest, uh, the next 400 years of biblical history. So Rehoboam went to the town of Shechem after uh, his dad Solomon died and all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king, meaning a lot of the people, but mainly the leaders of the 12 tribes. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, I haven't told you Jeroboam's story, but Solomon, he, he tried to rebel against Solomon. Solomon uh, exiled him, so he's in Egypt. So when he heard, though, uh, that they called him from Egypt, and he came with the assembly of Israel. And they said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And Rehoboam said, give me three days to think about it. So what are they saying? And I want you to understand this because this isn't just like a Bible story. This is like a real story. Here's the bottom line. This story could be happening today. Solomon was a great king in a lot of ways. He had international influence, they were a large country, but in order to build the temple, remember Solomon built the temple for God, magnificent temple, he fortified cities, he did a lot of infrastructure projects, and the taxes were very heavy to do it. But here's the problem. If you look back at the map, let me go back just a little bit. Basically, and I'm gonna show you this in a minute, but just north of Jerusalem, you have two of the 12 tribes down here, and you have 10 of the tribes living north of that line. 
Well, the problem is most of the capital investment went into the area where the two tribes were living. Jerusalem, the southern row of forts, and not as much went to the north. So again, this could be a modern story. The tribes in the north come and say, your father's yoke was heavy. In other words, lower our taxes, we're just not getting as much out of it as you were. And if you do that, we're gonna serve you. So they're negotiating with him. And he said, we'll come back in three days. In the meantime, King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father. So Solomon's cabinet. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, in other words, lower their taxes, then they will be your servants forever. They will be loyal to you and you will be king. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to the young men, what do you advise that we answer this people who've asked me to cut the taxes? And the young men who had grown up with him said, this is how you ought to answer them. Your father made the, uh, he said, my father Solomon made your burden heavy. Uh, will you lighten it for us? Instead, you should say my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. This is an ancient way of saying I'm twice the man my father was. You know, and uh, you can see the, the parental issues coming into play. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. I'm gonna raise your taxes, you ingrates. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So he comes back to them and he said, no, I'm the man and you're gonna serve me and I'm gonna raise your taxes. And I'm gonna do even greater things than my father Solomon did. Well, how do you suppose they reacted? So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day and he said to them, he answered, he said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I'm gonna to add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. He's not talking about literally whipping them, he's just saying, my father Solomon ruled with an iron fist and he did what he wanted, I'm gonna be even tougher than he was. So that's what he's saying to them. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill the word that he had spoken to Jeroboam. Now, when all Israel, so this is a purely political calculation, saw that the king did not listen to them, the, the leaders of those 10 tribes answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. So what did they say? They said, we're not gonna anoint you king. You're on your own. If you wanna fight us, come and get us, but we are not gonna be part anymore. So it was a civil war without really being a war. He just squandered their support and they just went home. And so now what's he gonna do? Well, typically you would get your army together and you'd go conquer them and teach them a lesson. Problem is, this is what the map looks like now in 930, is he's got two tribes worth of people down here. See, here's Jerusalem right below the line. They've got 10 tribes up here. They have more of an army than he has. He can't do anything. And so you come into this period called the divided kingdom of Israel. And so now, instead of one nation, the northern 10 tribes are called Israel. This is a little confusing, but they kept the name of Israel. 
the southern two tribes were called Judah because Judah is the larger of the two tribes. And so you have Judah and Israel. And from 930 BC, for a couple of hundred years before some conquests take place, they have animosity toward each other. And it all started at that period of time. So in 930, Rehoboam rules in the southern kingdom and Jeroboam rules in the northern 10 tribes in the kingdom of Israel. But Jeroboam realizes that he has a bit of an uneasy alliance as king in the north. He also has a political problem. Well, he can lower the taxes at least a little bit. He's smart enough to do that. But here's his big concern. He is afraid that these 10 tribes, guess where they have to go to make their sacrifices? Guess where they have to go to worship? They have to go to Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. They have to go to the temple of Solomon to make their sin offerings. And Jeroboam realizes for him, this is a political problem. Again, I'm talking about politics and economics because the prophets were living in real history with real people. It's just like it is today. Most of these decisions are made the same way today. So what does Jeroboam do? Uh, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, meaning they'll reconsider, they'll realize we have to go to Jerusalem to serve God. Maybe God doesn't want us to be two kingdoms. Maybe we ought to make up with Rehoboam. So when he says the house of David, he means Rehoboam, David's grandson. And so he said, you know what? He said, the heart of this people is gonna turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They'll kill me and then they'll reunite with Judah. Well, he doesn't want that to happen, so what does he do? He realizes their religion is going to get in the way of my political ambitions. So he decides, I'm gonna solve the religious problem for them. So the king took counsel and made two golden calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. That's a racket. It's like you go there, the foods, it's like going to the airport. You know, they know you're a captive audience. They're charging you too much for this. You can come to my temple. I'll charge you a whole lot less. In fact, you can bring your own food and drinks into my temple, right? So he's basically saying, you, he's gonna turn it around and he's gonna say, they've been exploiting you. You can worship God here. And in fact, you can worship more gods here. You can worship Yahweh if you want, but hey, these golden calves are really good looking and some of you have been flirting with some of the native religions. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the two golden calves. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. These are two cities. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. In other words, he's not even trying to follow the law of Moses here. He's, gonna, he's going to give a much, much more people-friendly religion here. And so Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. In other words, he recreated what they were used to, but they can now do it 
in the northern kingdom. So let me show you what this looks like. So in the northern kingdom, here's the southern, you see Judah down here, you see Israel up here. By the way, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, it's not Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, Samaria. That town is the capital of the northern kingdom. And 900 years later, what are the name of the people that live in that land? Samaritans. And so that's where that comes from, by the way. So his capital is in Samaria. But look what he did, this is clever. Bethel is just north of the border and Dan is all the way up here at the top. So he said, look, I'm gonna make this easy. I'm gonna put two temples, two golden calves. You can go to whichever one is closest. Well, all those people in the north been making a long trek to Jerusalem. They're like, it's sort of like when you have a Costco come to town. You know, it's, it's like, wow, we don't have to drive anymore to get, you know, to shop at this great place. Well, that's what he did. He's playing to the interests of the people and he's using religion to buttress his political uh, situation. And so he actually built a temple in Bethel and a temple in Dan. And he built the temple on the same proportions of Solomon's temple. So when they went there, it probably didn't have all the gold and stuff, Solomon's temple, but it had the same proportions. When you went into Solomon's temple, there was an altar, huge altar for sacrifice of the animals. And then beyond that, there was a courtyard that was the courtyard of the women and then a courtyard of the men and then the Holy of Holies. He built a replica, if you will, of Solomon's temple. How do we know that? Well, the temple in Bethel was destroyed by a later king, but the temple in Dan was not destroyed and it is still there. Well, the ruins of it are still there. So this is a picture of where you would enter the temple in the city of Dan. We're now in the city way north. This has been excavated. The, this is the altar. So when you came in through the walls out here, and this is just like Solomon's temple, you would come in and there's the big altar where you would bring your, your, uh, your uh, lambs and other things, your sin offerings, and the priests would take it up and they'd burn it for you and you'd be okay with God. Then beyond that, you would go into the rest of the temple. They are currently up here, you can't see it, but to the right of this picture, there are stairs going up and they're excavating back there to find the remains of the rest of the temple. So that temple exists. This is the altar. It's a little bit hard to see, but basically you can see the steps going up on one side, there are steps going up on the other side. This is exactly the way Solomon's temple was laid out. The priests would go up one side, burn the animal, they would go down the other side. There are rooms where they would throw the skins of the animals and a lot of good excavations have happened here to indicate this is, the, he replicated Solomon's temple with other gods also. So you could do Yahweh worship if you were devout, but if you wanted to worship the golden calf, you could. If you wanted to worship Baal, you could. So he decides politically, I'm gonna get everybody and shores up his rule. So this is another view. This metal structure is showing you the size 
of the stone structure that would have been there. And then I put two pictures. This uh, one in the top is an altar from Beersheba, South Israel. This is another smaller one that was found. And I want you to realize what you see on the left is just a huge altar. The other two are smaller, but they look identical, don't they? And these little things on the top were there to show you these little stone projections. Those are called the horns of the altar. So if you've read Old Testament and they'll refer to the horns of the altar, that's the way they made their altars. So they've got this huge place to sacrifice animals there. It looks like the temple of Moses. And so Jeroboam decides that he is going to dilute the religion. He's gonna make it appealing to everybody and he does it for political purposes. He does it for his own selfish purposes. And so now you have people worshiping God there and worshiping other gods and doing things in, in a variety of different ways. So this continues in the north down through history. So this is 930 BC. In about 80 years, in 850 BC, do you remember Ahab from our last lesson? And remember he married Jezebel and she wanted Baal? Well, they put an altar to Baal in here. And Elijah comes and confronts him. And so the northern kingdom of Israel has been flirting with other gods for all this time period. And I wanna talk to you about two prophets that address this issue. This issue of how do you worship God? Because what Jeroboam was eventually saying is, those religious authorities down in Jerusalem say you have to serve him there and you can only serve him and you have to serve him that way. Not us, you can serve him in either one of my two temples I built. You can serve your other gods if you want to, it's fine. Does this sound modern to you? This ought to sound modern to you because these are people, ancient people, they might as well be modern people. Same thing happens today, but that's what Jeroboam did for purposes of his own. So I wanna to talk to you about two prophets. One of them, and we're gonna move through time here. One of them lived in 760 BC. So think about 180 years after Jeroboam set these up and they're up and going. Then the other is about 450 BC. 300 years later. And what you're gonna find is the Israelites through time struggled with how do we worship God? Do we worship God the way he wants to be worshiped? Or can we take liberties and do what's more convenient for us and do what we would rather do? In other words, on whose terms do we have to worship God? So the first prophet I want to introduce you to is Amos. Amos, this is the first verse of the book of Amos. He's one of the minor prophets, one of the 12 prophets at the tail end of your Old Testament. He was born down here in Tekoa, which is Bethlehem's like right here. So you, in fact, you can see Tekoa uh, from Bethlehem. And so the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So now think about this, he's not uh, royalty. He's not connected. You know, he didn't go to Harvard. He went to the community college in Tekoa. And so you're, you see what I told you last time, the prophets come from all different socioeconomic and stations in life. So he's a shepherd in Tekoa. 
And these are the words that he saw concerning Israel, the northern kingdom now. When you see it now, you realize we have a split kingdom. We're talking about the northern kingdom. And when? During the reign of Isaiah, who was king down here in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam, and this is Jeroboam II, so it's not the one we just talked about. He was king of Israel. So when were these guys kings? So Jeroboam II was king from 793 to 753. And then Isaiah, we, we know his rule too down here, is 792 to 740. And so what, and then it talks about two years before the earthquake. There is some archeological evidence that there was a massive earthquake about 760 BC. So this is probably talking around 760, 765 BC. So you can pretty well date when he's talking. So what's happening here? Why is he sent to the Israelites? Well, Elijah was sent to Ahab to say, quit worshiping Baal and come back and worship God the way he wants to. Well, here it is 100 years later, why is Amos coming? Something interesting has happened because Israel and Judah, they've been enemies for 200 years, ever since Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the split. But these two kings made peace with each other. They said, look, it's killing our economies to constantly be at war. Let's just shake hands and say, live and let live. And now instead of building up our defense budgets, this is truly how this works. Instead of building up our defense budgets, we can go put more into Medicaid. All right, that's basically what they said, and they get peace. They lower taxes because they don't need as much military because they're not fighting the nation next door all the time. People realize, oh, lower taxes, Reaganomics kicks in, and people get more prosperous, right? What happened during the rule of these kings is the people became more prosperous, and they became spiritually complacent. And so you see people who've had a high taxes and been on a war footing for a long time, all of a sudden trying to amass wealth and they become very materialistic. As they become materialistic, they do lip service to God. They still go to the temples and do what they're supposed to do and maybe worship the golden calf along the way, but their hearts are really in their prosperity and making money. So let me stop there and then we'll see what God has to say to them during this time. Going back just a little bit, when the split happened, the tribe of Levi went to the north, correct? Um, okay, so the tribe of Levi doesn't actually have any territory. The Levites who were supposed to, they were the ones that were allowed to serve in the temple and take care of the temple they actually were interspersed throughout all of the territory. So you do have some Levites living in the north and some in the south. They're the one tribe that didn't get land, they just got cities everywhere because they served the whole nation. So were there, were there Levites to serve the temple in Jerusalem? Yes, so there were Levites living in the south because they lived in everybody's territory and there were priests who were living in Jerusalem, duh, because that's where the temple was. So there were, no, there were no like the high priests and all that living in the north. And so what Jeroboam had to do, one of the problems is he said, I'm gonna let people be priests that aren't of the tribe of Levi. 
and I'm gonna let people serve that aren't uh, Levites. So yet another thing that he did that wasn't according to the scriptures. Good question. Okay, so do we know that God was not okay with the campus arrangement or did he just not like the golden calf? Yeah, I'd say both of the above. God didn't like the multi-campus arrangement um, and he definitely did not care for the golden calf. If you've read the book of Exodus, so think 1400 BC, Moses, Charlton Heston, Yule Brenner, you know, bringing the Israelites out. Remember what they do? They make a golden calf when they get out. In other words, they still got this Egypt inside of them. You know, we haven't gotten the Egypt out of the Israelites yet. We haven't gotten the idolatry out of them. Well, it turns out that they didn't just pick a golden calf, by the way, this is off the subject, but might as well talk about it. They didn't just pick a golden calf out of the blue, like, oh, I like calves, let's make a, let's make a bull. You know, no, that was a long time symbol of strength and a representative of gods. In other words, a god would be, it's sort of like having a mascot. Right, And if you think about it, if you've got a football team that shows up and they're the fighting tigers, right? And you got the other team that are the cuddly koalas. You know, what are you thinking here? It's like, I'm, I don't know the teams, but I'm, fight, I'm betting on the fighting tigers, right? Okay, that's the way gods were. They wanted their mascot to be strong. And so a bull was a pagan kind of a symbol. So the, he did not care for the golden calf, obviously. That's idolatry. But he also didn't care for them making, and this is gonna be a theme, that's a really good question. What did Jeroboam do? Well, he was being cynical. But they decided they would worship God on their terms. It's inconvenient to go to Jerusalem. I think I'm gonna to go to Dan instead. And that is more important than the campuses per se. The idea that I'll decide how to worship God and it'll just have to be good enough for God. That's the attitude that is really offensive to God. And by the way, that's exactly what Amos talks to them about. So Amos, we'll pick up in chapter two, chapter four, chapter five, I'm just gonna sample Amos. Now you know who he is, where he came from. And uh, he is, first thing he says, this is a formula. So don't read too much into this. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. In other words, Judah, you also need to turn back because you also are not as faithful as you should be. He says, your lies have led you astray after which your fathers were. I will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem if you don't repent. Thus says the Lord. Now listen to what he talks to the Northern Kingdom about. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, human life means nothing. Good people, bad people means nothing. Human life means nothing. All, it's all about money. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And so I wanna give you an example uh, of how this works. Lest you think, well, all of a sudden they just became evil people. No, they just pursued money. So my grandfather lived in Kentucky and he was a sharecropper. And so he would, this is the way sharecropping works. So he would farm, it wasn't his land, but he would farm and he would get half to the owner and he would keep half. 
Well, there would be years where the crop wasn't very good. And so he didn't have enough money to plant for the next year. So he would borrow money against next year's crop. This is really common. Uh, maybe it's not today, but it's really very common. Definitely common in their days is if you don't have enough money out of the crop to plant next year, you need to borrow some money. Well, he would maybe have a better year and take two or three years, but he'd get back even. And that was his life. That's what it was like to be a sharecropper a farmer. In Israel, it's not uncommon to have two or three years of drought. And so after two or three bad crops, guess what? You are mortgaged completely to somebody who has more money. I would say the bank, but they didn't really have banks then. But when they talk about people oppressing the poor, what they mean is you had three years of bad crops and I've advanced you money, guess what? You're out, it's my land now. And so this is what they're talking about is these kinds of business practices that have no respect for human dignity or human people. But he goes on. So that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're treating, they, money is their God. They're treating their fellow Israelites as if they were of no value. And then God says this, oh sure, come to Bethel, come to the temple to transgress. He said, no, we come there to worship. He says, no, you come there to sin. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel. What's he saying? You hypocrites. Monday through Friday, you go out there and you chase money and you oppress the poor and then you come to the temple and you wanna put on a show of look at me, I'm a godly man, here I am worshiping God. In other words, you're in the wrong place, worshiping the wrong God, and you're doing the wrong things, and you think I'm okay with that? I mean, Amos is delivering a powerful message to the people that don't kid yourself. You can't treat God this way. Next, he said, I put this in here just for one, one phrase, because it's just like worth everything. He says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. He says, I've given you a lot of chances to repent. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Have you ever wondered where that came from? It's in every Dirty Harry movie, probably. You know, it's a tough guy line. Now you know, Amos said it first. He says, prepare to meet your God, meaning you think you can get away with that kind of hypocrisy? You think I'm satisfied with you going through the motions and yet you acting like that? Well, step up and let's just find out how big an old boy are you? In other words, God is coming to call you to account for what you're doing. He goes on and listen, this is God's judgment. He says, I hate I despise your feasts. Now remember, they're doing the right things. They're bringing the animals. They're showing up there. They're observing the feasts, at least in a ritual way. It's obvious it hasn't changed who they are, right? Is this starting to make parallels today too? That sometimes we go through the motions, but it doesn't change who we are? Well, that's what's happening. And listen to what God says. He says, your feasts, I hate them. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But go let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream and then come serve me. So you get at this essential idea of what does it look like to actually worship God? And that's a very relevant issue to us today. What Amos is saying to them, if you really wanna worship God, you can't just go through the motions, you can't do the outward things and your heart is ugly. Think about what Jesus got on the Pharisees about. He did not get after the Pharisees because they didn't follow the law of Moses. They did follow the law of Moses. And they made up a bunch of other rules, but they basically used those rules to beat down the other people. What are these people doing? I'm following God and I'm foreclosing on mortgages Monday through Friday and I'm doing it in a, and I'm violating the law of Moses to do it. In other words, you're, you're not supposed to enslave your fellow Israelites. So he's really, God really has a problem with that insincerity, with that hypocrisy of what's in your heart and what's outside are not the same. That's the issue Jesus had with the Pharisees. Not that they weren't righteous in the sense of doing the right things. He said, remember he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't get in the kingdom of heaven. What's he mean? You need to obey God. He said, but here's your problem. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're clean on the outside, but you're just dead and filled with evil things on the inside. That's his people. And this is what God tells Amos to tell them, is you don't get to serve me on your own terms. You can't take God for a fool and think I'll do the right things on Sunday and then I'll just go live my life the way I want the rest of the time. This idea of what does it mean to worship God is what Amos is really talking about. Well, let's go forward just a little bit. Now we're gonna fast forward, because I want to show you this comes in cycles, generational cycles. So what's happened since 760? 760, shortly after that, because the Northern Kingdom does not repent, they don't listen to Amos, Amos preaches, 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 says, God says, don't kid yourself. You need to turn your hearts to him. You need to have your deeds and your worship match each other. They don't. And so a mere 40 years later, the Assyrians in the north conquer that northern kingdom of Israel. And they take the 10 tribes, all the Israelites living there, and they deport them. The Assyrians had a policy, and that is, we're gonna have a big old kingdom, and they did, and we are not to be trifled with, and they weren't. And we are going to keep a stable kingdom because we're not gonna let anybody live at their home. What they decided was everybody we conquered gets relocated somewhere else, and those people get relocated here. Their philosophy was nobody's gonna rebel against us for land that isn't even their land. And so they resettled them. They scattered all those Israelites throughout the Assyrian kingdom, throughout Iraq and Iran, even into some of the Balkan states today. Those would be the places today. That's when the 10 tribes of Israel were lost to history. It's when the Assyrians came, and they came 38 years after Amos 
gave the final warning to Israel to turn your hearts back to God, and they did not. And Assyria was God's judgment. He said, prepare to meet your God. It's like, I'm sending some fellas to tell you what I think about this. You wanna live a secular life? Good luck. See how you like living with the Assyrians. Not very much, right? And that's what happens. Well, Judah, the southern kingdom, they remain a little bit more faithful. And they have some good kings, and they have kings that turn them back to God. And so from 722, when the north is destroyed, the Assyrians are not successful in conquering the southern kingdom of Judah. They turn to God. This is King Hezekiah. This is Isaiah the prophet. They pray to God and say, God, I got all these Assyrians out here and we do not know what to do. And God says, oh, glad you asked, because I do. And they don't conquer the southern kingdom. But over time, they get some bad kings and they began to turn away from God. And so you get Isaiah warns them, Jeremiah warns them, uh, Ezekiel warns them, some of the minor prophets warn them, but from 760 in Amos till 586, so another 180 years or so, the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem and deport the southern kingdom. But as Jeremiah, some of the prophets have said, if you will turn to God, we will bring you home. And they do. And so in the 400s, they come back, 500s, 400s, they come back to Jerusalem. That's when Ezra and Nehemiah build the wall around Jerusalem. Well, they come back and they get comfortable. God blesses them, they get prosperous again. And guess what happens? They don't learn the lesson of their ancestors. They do the same thing. They become very spiritually complacent. They're not complacent in life. And this is something I wanna kinda hit on here. It's not that the people became complacent in life. They just became complacent about God. Remember back in the time of Amos 760, the people were all about making money. They were just going through the motions to serve God. They were complacent spiritually. They were on fire to make money. Same thing's happening here. They have all their problems of life. I mean, they've got cars that don't run. They've got mortgages. They've got high interest rates. They've got Bidenomics kicking in. They've got a national debt. I mean, they've got a lot of worries. But as far as spiritually, they're complacent about that. They're looking to political solutions for their problems in life. And so God sends the prophet Malachi. He's the last of the minor prophets, last book in the Old Testament. He is the, this is where, after this, God goes silent until John the Baptist for 400 years. But this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi, unlike Amos, Amos spoke to the people. Malachi is gonna preach to the people, but he's gonna single out the priests or let me put it in today's terms, the clergy. And he says, the people are doing the wrong thing, but you clergy know better, and it's your job to be speaking the word of God. So here's what Malachi says. God says to, to uh, the uh, Judah, the Israelites living in Judah, a son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am your master, where is the fear? Where's the respect? 
says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By polluting, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, what's the one thing everybody here knows about sacrifices? Unblemished animals. The first and the best of your crops, the first and the best of your flock, uh, no imperfect animals. In other words, you give God the first and you give God your best. He says, well, I've been noticing some of these animals look blind in sacrifices. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Why don't you make that offering to your governor? Do you think he'll accept that? And so what's happening? They're like, look, we need to go through the motions to appease God. We're still a religious people, right? So we need to do this, but you know, honestly, I just can't give him that lamb. That lamb's, that's gonna bring top dollar. I got a sick lamb over here, I'll give that to God. What's happening? The same fundamental issue is, yes, I'm gonna serve God, but I'm gonna do it on my terms not his terms. It's the same thing that was happening 300 years before. Of course, think about it, 300 years, that's like George Washington and us. I don't know how many lessons we've learned from the founding fathers of America, but they certainly didn't learn from the people that went before them. And so they're doing the same thing, and I want you to see what the essence of what is going wrong here is the idea that I will decide how to serve God, not God. And that sin, that offense, that rebellion against God, it's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. What does the serpent say then? He said, God said this, but actually you can do what you want and you can be your own God. Well, that didn't work out well, did it? This doesn't either. And so that's an ancient problem that manifests itself in a very, very modern way, doesn't it? You see this exact same attitude. We don't offer animal sacrifices. We don't serve God in the same way, but we too have a covenant with God. And when we decide that we know how we're gonna serve you and we know the terms on which we're gonna serve you, we do the exact same thing. So what is the prophetic message on worship? There's a theme that runs through the prophets. I've shown you two but you'll see this over and again because it's not about what kind of music. I know I tweeted out that did the prophets like this kind of music or that kind of music. It's not about the music. It's not even about the sacrifice. It's about the attitude, the heart. I hate to use the word heart because I don't want you to think that's just emotions. It's about the whole being attitude toward God. The problem with the Israelites was their attitude toward God was I'll decide how you'll be served, not you. And so what you see is this idea that if our worship isn't right, nothing is right. And I want you to think about that. Why do I say that? Because they have a lot of political problems. In 760 when Amos is there, in 450 when Malachi is talking to them, and, and in between. They have a lot of problems that they would like God to solve for them. They're not looking to God to solve for them, but there are a lot of things God could have said. I mean, I want you to think about this. 
if you're God and you wanna to talk to rebellious people, there are a lot of things you could say. One would be, I want you to stop all the sexual immorality. I want you to start treating people better. I want you to, yeah, there are a lot of things you could say. Why does God pick their worship? Isn't that interesting? Why this? Why would this be the message? And that's because if our worship of God is, right, is not right, nothing is right. If our posture toward God, and what I mean when I say our posture, if my mind and my heart and my hands are not seeking God, then it, nothing else is going to work well. Nothing, it's not like God's gonna put a Band-Aid on it and said, look, I know that you don't really love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but if you could just quit cheating on your taxes, I'll let you in. That's not the way this works, is it? If worship isn't right, nothing is right. And this is a key theme that you'll see throughout the prophets. Secondly, worship is more than ritual behavior. You can't go through the motions. New Testament says this, don't kid your, I'm paraphrasing, but this is exactly what it says. Don't kid yourself, God can't be mocked. You will reap what you sow. That is exactly what this is saying, is if you sow hypocrisy, you will reap nothing. If you sow sincerity of heart to God, you will reap the blessings of God. In other words, don't think you can kid God and just show up at church and go through the motions and then go live however you want to the rest of the time. He said, God is not a fool. God's not gonna be okay with that. You can't bring the blind and lame animals in and give them to God and say, wow, look at me. Look what I'm doing for God. So worship is more than ritual behavior. It involves our whole posture towards God, our whole attitude towards God. And finally, we worship and serve God on his terms, not our terms. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The first and greatest commandment is not, when it's convenient, maybe give a little lip service to God. Maybe say thanks, maybe text him every now and then to say, appreciate you, you know, no. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. That's the first and greatest commandment, and that requires wholehearted, whole being, commitment to God. Worshiping God is not about the style of music. Some are better than others. It's not about sermons. Some are better than others. It's not about where. Some are more comfortable than others. It's really not about any of those things. It's about being wholeheartedly in the presence of God. So for example, and I know this may be stepping on your toes, but I'm not being holier than thou because I've been there and done it myself too. And that is when I come to church looking for what I can get out of it, that's not the posture of worship. I'm not saying there might not be things that need to be changed, but the point is it's not about me. It's actually about me coming to give praise and thanks and be in this loving environment with the God that loved me so much he gave his only son that I could be with him forever. That's the posture of worship. And so we can do that anywhere, but anywhere we do it, we need to do it in that way. And then just compare the stories we've talked about, how far off the Israelites were from that posture of worship. 
And this commandment was the one that Moses gave them. This is the essence of the law of Moses. So serving God with our whole being is what God requires of us. And so as we look back, the question is, will we learn the lesson that they did not learn? And that is that God is not a fool and he won't be mocked and he wants my whole heart or he wants nothing. And that is then by all means, go your way and live your life however you want. God demands all of us and he gives us even more than he demands, but it's complete submission to God. And so that's an, that is a theme. I've just given you two prophets, but you're gonna see this theme as you read through the Old Testament and you read through in different situations in Israel's history, you will see the whole thing. Even in the New Testament, let's give you one example. Remember when Jesus goes to the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. By that time, they hate each other's guts. And so he asks her for some water, etc. But then they get into a discussion. She realizes, oh, I see that you're a prophet. She thinks he's a prophet because he knows stuff he shouldn't know, right? Like God's told you this because nobody knows this. And so she says to him, look, my problem with you guys, my problem with you as a prophet is that you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. Boy, doesn't that sound like Jeroboam's time, right? 900 years earlier. And Jesus says, that's right, you do, you're wrong. But he said, the time is coming when you won't worship God on Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans still worship God, all 800 of them that are still alive in the world, nor in Jerusalem, but you will worship him in spirit and in truth. Wholehearted worship with God anywhere that you wish to worship God because God himself is with us. So we have the advantage of having a more intimate relationship. And, but here's the point that I wanna make. If we have such a more intimate relationship with God, how much greater would be our sin to give God lip service in our worship? Does that make sense? This is starting to sound like hellfire and brimstone, isn't it? But we need to think about that for a minute. We've been given incredible access to God and to worship him the way they were worshiping him is like turning your back on the person with whom you have the closest relationship. It's a huge act of betrayal. And so the prophets have urged us, have invited us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and worship God the way he wants to be worshiped and the way he deserves to be worshiped. I would argue that's a very ancient message that has very, very modern relevance. And my hope is not that you would feel bad about the way you worship, but you would be encouraged and say, yeah, that's right. Whenever I turn to God, I can worship him wholeheartedly anywhere, anytime, and especially when we all come together. So my hope is that we're encouraged by this to say, we will be wise enough to heed the words of the prophet and worship God on his terms. Next week, the prophets had a lot to say about social justice, but it may not be exactly what you think it was, but that's what we're gonna talk about next time. I'll see you then.